I'm not a smart man. I'm raised a herder. I'm raised a cowboy, but I can tell you clean from unclean. I can tell you why your herd is open to predators. I can tell you why the demon is preying on your parish and why it's preying on your church and why it's preying on your ministry because I've watched the patterns of predation. And when you say that relativism is, there is no absolute truth, you are flinging open the door to the diabolical because now you are the judge, you are the Pope, you, you decide. And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Kyle Clement is loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. Clement has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the Religious Association of Societas Madras Dolorisime, with Father Chad Ripperger, together they formed the Liber Christo movement. Kyle, welcome to the show. We're following up to our last episode on November 22nd. Thank you for coming again. Hello, Angela. It's good to be with you and your listeners this morning. Yes, and it's wonderful to have you back, Kyle. So our last episode, we explained that four exorcists began a movement. I want to use that word, a movement, for today, December 6th, the Feast of St. Nicholas, the first Friday in Advent, to be a day of prayer and reparation. Our original episode was talking about why we need to have a day of prayer and reparation at this time. Now it seems as though it's gone viral in many of the Catholic organizations. I think National Catholic Register did an article about the importance of prayer and reparation. So today is the day, Kyle. Today's the moment of truth where we are urging Catholics on this day, at this hour, to consider to making today a day of prayer and fasting and reparation. First of all, can you explain what's involved with prayer and fasting, why it's efficacious, and why, as a follow-up question, we need to have reparation? What are we repairing? It's a great opening to, to, to this topic. And so let's, let's look at it from kind of swirl down, if you will. Let's look at the cosmic view and then kind of come down to, to the individual. From a cosmic sense, this is a Friday. It's a first Friday. It is the first Friday of Advent. So it's the first Friday of a new liturgical year. And so I would urge the listeners to consider making first Friday devotion for this year. And so it's not just a one day, but this day focuses at the request of several exorcists on a particular subject. So cosmically, as we join our prayers, as we join our um, intentions and our actions, um, it is in supplication to the Lord to hear our prayer. And so fasting augments prayer. And what the fasting is about is about a mortification. So it's not just doing without food, although that's the simplest form. It's also doing without other things. In other words, how important is this effort to us? How important is it for us to do the work that accompanies the prayer? 
why am I saying do the work? Friday is the day of our Lord's passion. Every Friday should commemorate our Lord's passion. We were more attuned to this when the church as a whole um, abstained from meat, from flesh meat on Fridays. The orientation or the understanding, the disposition was in acknowledgement of the outrages against the flesh of our Lord on this day. And so I think we lose the cosmic sense we must understand always and everywhere that the history of the Catholic Church did not begin with Vatican II. It did not begin with the, the diminution of traditional practices and observances that increased the sanctity, the sanctifying grace in all of us. And so the reason that, we're, that this is being called for on um, this Friday is Friday is, is always and everywhere and should be a commemoration of our Lord's passion. To do without something on this day, whatever it may be, including food, gives us a clear, uh, it draws us back. Every time there's a hunger pain, every time there's a desire to check your phone, incidentally, modernly, fasting from cell phone use on Friday is probably more difficult than doing without food. But what are the temporal things that we are, are dependent upon? And so, that's the fasting that we're looking at. That's and that's the reason is it is it adds merit to the prayer. What are you doing physically? What are you willing to do physically to augment your spiritual petition? The spiritual petition that the exorcists are calling for today is very, very simple. I draw your attention to the LifeSite news article, which is very, very clear on this. Exorcists call for a day of reparation after the Pachamama rituals. It says it all. The reparation is for, very simply, they're asking to drive out any diabolical influence within the church that occurred as a result of the Pachamama ritual that Pope Francis attended at the Vatican at the onset of the Amazon Synod. That's their quote. It's not mine. It's the quote. That's what's asked for. And so we come and we find ourselves at a realization that there is an abomination in the temple scripturally, like in Maccabees. There is an inclusion, there is, an, there is um, an element that is unclean. And so the reparation is the understanding, first of all, by the laity, by priests, and by others who are willing to join this effort, that A, there is an uncleanness that has entered. B, it must be addressed. And C, we're willing to address it through prayer and reparation. If you have been praying for pur purification of the church, if the desire has been purification of the church, then this is the opportunity to make good on that. What are you willing to do? Now, let me clear up, clarify a few things. Understand that these exorcists, as well as myself, please understand this statement. We are not anti-Pope, not at all. And we are not anti-Francis, not at all. He is our Pope. This is part of our precept. This is part of our faith. And so, very simply, do not get that understanding. It's not about um, being anti-Francis. It's not about being anti-Cardinal or anti-Bishop. It's about pointing out to these men, out of love, that this is unclean. 
if we're going to talk about the shepherds and the sheep, then understand something, shepherds, please, fathers, cardinals, holy fathers, understand something very simply. By your actions, you have led us into a howling wasteland of relativism and modernism that is devoid of any spiritual nourishment. And in fact, the souls in our care, we the old sheep, especially the men, we the old rams are coming to you saying, we do not recognize this range, nor do we recognize these plants, these things that you're offering for our nutrition, and our children are leaving. We can't convince our children to follow you. We can't convince our wives, our sons. We can't follow you. Where you're going is unknown to us. It's no place we've ever been. It's a departure of tradition. It's a departure of the faith as it's known and been practiced for centuries. It's taking the church a place that it's never been and it wasn't ever designed to go. Add on to this the loss of trust as a result of the handling of abuse, the loss of trust, the loss of communication. You no longer talk to us. You talk about us. You no longer shepherd us. We're something that you have to deal with. Pope Francis had a beautiful quote about the smell of the sheep. How does the bishop that spends all his time in conference and traveling, how does that bishop know the smell of his sheep or what his sheep's concerns are? How does he know those things? He doesn't. I'm speaking to you as an abandoned son who would talk to his father, who would approach his father in the brothel and say, Father, come home. Father, please come back to your family. Come back to us. That's what we're asking, and we're asking it out of love, and that's what this reparation is about, is that please come back to a, a state of fidelity, to a range that we recognize, to a place that we understand. So that's the cosmic view and how it affects the individual, all the way down to the individual. Also, cosmically, we understand that this is the first Friday of a new liturgical year. It is the first Friday. It is also the Feast of St. Nicholas. He who spoke very clearly about elements that were unclean in the church. We also have an interesting thing developing with Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who is being denied elevation because of concerns. Now, Archbishop Sheen was very clear about the integrity of the liturgy. He was very clear about the necessity for right doctrine, right teaching. And he was very clear about the necessity for clergy to yield to right principles, to doctrine, to dogma, and not to take the church somewhere it wasn't supposed to go. He was very clear on homosexuality and admission of men into the seminary who were unfit. This was something that, that he was very adamant about, he wrote about, he talked about, and I think there's an element within our church that realizes that if he becomes saint, then these statements take on even more magnitude. That's where we are. Now, these priests are calling for the diabolical influence within the church. Understand that when you sit in solemn session. And a fallen angel, a fallen diabolical entity is under the authority of the priest. 
information is given which may be chilling. And while demons, their veracity coefficient is not very high, generally speaking, under certain commands and certain conditions, the information they give up must be considered. And in more than one case around the world, currently, the diabolical is stating that there are practices within the Vatican and within the hierarchy that are not only inconsistent with Catholic faith, but are consistent with Satanism. This is a very egregious claim. I'm not making it. I'm repeating what the diabolical has said around the world and in multiple settings. When we see pagan practices, when we see pagan idols, when we see these things brought into the church and some of the statements that are being made by our hierarchy, which are inconsistent with known tradition, known faith, and the history of the church as its totality, then we as the laity have to stop at the edge, at this borderland, and say, we can't go here. We can't go here. It's not an act of rebellion. It's not that at all. It's the act of conscience that says you're leading us into moral and theological areas that we cannot go. I, as a father, as a patriarch, am involved in vocation for 39 years. I have children. I have grandchildren. I have souls that I am responsible for. I have souls that I must pray for. I am charged with the domestic church and the integrity of that domestic church. Fathers, bishops, cardinals, holy Father. Please understand that. Please understand that. And you place us in a position that is untenable. We can't stay here. It's as if we're standing on one foot. We have to step forward or step back. We can't stay here. And I'm asking you, out of masculine consideration, one man to another, speak clearly. Speak clearly so that I may make a decision. Because I have to stand in front of our Lord Jesus Christ at particular judgment, and again, at final judgment, and give an account for my life, for the decisions I made, what I did, what I said, I have to make that decision. And I have to defend that decision in front of our Lord. Please be aware of that. There are those of us who can still consider daily the four last things. There are those of us who still consider daily the, the souls that are in our care, we're not politically motivated. We're not motivated to criticize or to tear down. That's not it at all. It's about a thirst for souls. It's about salvation of souls. This was our Lord's primary concern. This is our primary concern. And there is a disconnect between the very laity that you are to shepherd and the direction that you're taking us. That's what I'm asking. That's what I'm saying. And if you do not hear the heartfelt plea for the desire for unity within the church and a return to right doctrine, right order, then I don't know how else to make my plea clear. And it's not my plea. Based upon the responses from this program, there have been thousands. I'm not the only voice. I'm not the only voice. I don't propose to speak for laity, but what I'm saying, fathers, bishops, cardinals, holy father, 
What I'm saying is there's a significant number of men who are willing to die for you. Please don't make this Gallipoli. Please don't make this a waste. Please don't make this prayer a waste. Consider what I'm asking. Consider what the laity is asking. Consider what this movement is asking. And this movement is not to tear down. This movement is to build up the kingdom of God. Now, you mentioned Fulton Sheen and, and the LifeSite News article. And I'm looking at it right now, if you mind. I just want to quote it and see what you have to say about it. It said, in 1947, Archbishop Sheen, in a memorable radio sermon, laid out the dozen or so tricks the Antichrist will use to destroy Christians. Like the devil whose trademark signature is to twist the truth, to sell sin, so the Antichrist, according to Sheen, will twist the minds of men to make them believe that he is the great humanitarian who will talk peace, prosperity, and plenty. He will write books on the new idea of God to suit the way people live. He will invoke religion to destroy religion. He will even speak of Christ and say that he was the greatest man who ever lived. In the midst of all his seeming love for humanity and his glib talk of freedom and equality, he will have one great secret, which he will tell no one. He will not believe in God. And because his religion will be brotherhood without the fatherhood of God, he will deceive even the elect. He will set up a counter church which will be the ape of the church, because he, the devil, is the ape of God. It will be the mystical body of the Antichrist that will, in all externals, resemble the church as the mystical body of Christ. In desperate need for God, he will induce modern man, in his loneliness and frustration, to hunger more and more for membership in his community that will give man an enlargement of purpose without any need of personal amendment and without the admission of personal guilt. These are the days in which the devil has been given a particularly long rope, the Archbishop added. A critic of Nazism and communism, Sheen was also an effective proponent of racial harmony. And then he talks about World War II. He said for a Catholic to be anti-Semitic is to be un-Catholic. He deployed nuclear weapons as immoral and he advocated for the American withdrawal of Vietnam. So there's elements of this received our license on December 9th, which was the day that Fulton Sheen went home. And I remember Father Apostoli, who consecrated our radio station, told us that Fulton Sheen had the gift of prophecy. So you see elements, don't you, of what's going on today? I think, I think that we do well to listen to these words. Um, there was another prophet Pope Leo XIII, and he will be denied sainthood for the very reason. He spoke clearly, he spoke very definitively against the evils of relativism and modernism. And what are those, Kyle, maybe for people who aren't familiar with what modernism is and what's relativism? Modernism is that the church must be modernized or brought into a current age. It must conform to culture, it must conform to society. And nothing could be further from the truth. We are the conscience of the culture. We are the conscience of the world, Catholics. And when we speak against the actions of the world or the current political atmosphere, and when we elevate the spiritual disposition of souls 
over the temporal satisfaction, when we elevate sanctity over satisfaction, when we stress these things, the eternal consequences of our temporal actions, when we stress these things, we're silenced. And we said, no, you have to get along, you have to modernize. This was the Hellenization uh, of, of Israel. What does that mean, this, the Hellenization of Israel? It was the influence of, of the Greek culture and how it militated against the faith. It, it precipitated the Maccabean response. But Israel was never the same. The chosen people of God were never the same after they were Hellenized, after, after the Greek influence brought them in and convinced them that they needed to have gymnasium, they needed to have all of these different things, and the worship of God diminished. But ultimately, the attack is always and everywhere on God the Father. And Pope Leo XIII wrote very clearly about this, the dangers of brotherhood, and he spoke very, very clearly about Freemasonry. Now, his voice was one of many in a line. The Catholic churches had an uninterrupted line of uh, prohibition against secret society and Freemasonry. Modernly, we've even had archbishops who said it was okay to be Freemasons, and they were censored by the Vatican. Then they, that particular archbishop was honored by your cardinal as one of the outstanding fee, uh, uh, individuals in the Catholic Church. When we honor those who have been censored, then we need to pay attention. What is this? Um, why are we honoring these particular individuals who are speaking against the faith. Uh, I'm speaking vague in vague terms on on purpose. I don't I want to name that. names. I, I don't want to name names in this program because it's it's polemic. It's it tends to divide. And I'm simply wanting to point out the inconsistencies. Back to your question, Leo the Thirteenth, Pope Leo the Thirteenth wrote very clearly on these things, and he said the danger of Freemasonry is that brotherhood supplants Christian brotherhood, Christian family, and so. Temporal brotherhood or construct of brotherhood, fraternity, based upon temporal good power or politics is, a, is the ape of the church, which is what um, Archbishop Sheen was saying. And so I think you hear two prophets, you hear two prophets roughly 50 years apart saying exactly the same thing. We're now 50 years after, full, after uh, Archbishop Sheen and, and you're hearing multiple prophets. You're hearing multiple people saying the same thing. And there's a, there's a famous statement, and I don't want to simplify, but there's a famous statement, the emperor has no clothes. And once the little boy says it, then everyone's eyes are open to the absurdity that, that they're participating in. Mm -hmm. And I think this is about the eyes being opened. The horrible part of this is that there are good men, there are good priests, there are good bishops who now find themselves caught in the middle. What do I do? And I think this is one of the most egregious aspects of this, is that the hierarchy of the church, through obe uh, abuse of the obedient, forces good priests, good men, good deacons, good bishops, those above them force them into a compromised position. Though it's horrible, it's the opportunity for heroic virtue. And we see this individually there in the bright spots, in the bishops who stand up and say, no, mm -hmm. I am a shepherd first. My place is with my sheep. I know the smell of my sheep. I'm going to do what is, is right for the responsibility of these souls. And so we see these bishops withdrawing from the political discourse, 
with, with withdrawing from um, the desire for popularity. That's the modernism that um, Pope Leo XIII was talking about. So is the no. aim of modernism, you know, you said it's trying to bring the modern into the Catholic Church. What's be, is that, assuming everyone's a well-tensioned individual, is it that they want the church to be more popular so that if they make it more contemporary, they would bring, in theory, more people into the church? Is, is that what the argument is for it? Or should I ask I, someone on that, that is an advocate of it? I think that would be my, I think that's the right response is let's ask someone. I think we always presume we're, I mean, we are, um, we have to have the presumption of goodwill and we have to extend the presumption of goodwill to our brother, but we also have to protect ourselves from his, his uh, best intentions, which may damage us. Well, I just and say, so, where's the fruit? I mean, we've had modernism. Where's the fruit? Where are all the extra people in the church? If, and I think that's you know this whole thing with the you you mentioned the uh, Pacamama. You know, I I think it's in, the intention on the surface seems to me that well, you know, we'll give. It's a human approach. It's not a divine approach. If we if we have them with their things and we have our things, they'll be more open to listen to us and then we'll, then we'll be bringing them into the church. But I think the thing they're forgetting is it's God that brings them into the church and how would God smile on having a false God in his church? How could the Holy Spirit even be there if the way they're doing, you know, the end justifying the means? How could he even be there if they're bringing a pagan God in? It's an excellent commentary. It's spot on, and it's it is functional theology. You would be by many, you would be told that you have an oversimplified theology. I do. You have the faith of a child, and that's what Christ said was necessary to enter the kingdom of God. It is the simple faith of a child that says this is either clean or unclean. It either belongs in my father's house or it does not belong in my father's house. It is extremely simple. God is simple. He is so simple. He is so ordered. He is so direct. He is so, because it is love. It is love, not popularity. He chastises those whom he loves. He makes it tough. I will point out that Mexico, Mexico was converted by the Tridentine Mass. It was not converted by allowing Aztec dancers into the, into the liturgy. It was not converted by the enculturation or bringing things into the practice. It was one of the biggest conversion stories in the history of the cosmos, and it was the Tridentine Mass. The Latin Mass was the first Spanish Mass. The Latin Mass is what converted Mexico. The calling and down of the Holy Spirit, like the pen, like Pentecost. It's that calling down. Precisely. The conversion... Juan Diego is a saint because he placed being Catholic above anything else, being Indian, being Mexican, being Aztec, being anything. He placed being Catholic above that. Kateri Tekawitha is a saint because she's set everything aside and Catholicism, Catholicism became her primary focus. It was to be a Catholic. It was to be a saint. That's, that's what we've lost. And a lot of that is laid at the modernist education. Education of our young people. If you want to return to full seminaries, to full convents, to full monasteries, to full masses, to a vibrant practice of the faith, 
then we have to look back at when were the ma the masses full? When were the convents full? When were when were the monasteries full? When were the seminaries full? And you have to recapture that faith. You, that's reclamation theology. What, what is it to reclaim? This is the sin cycle that the Hebrews and the Israelites went through. They would incult, they would allow enculturation. They would intermarry. That all of these things would happen. They would fall away from God, and then there would be a purification and a return. We're in the same cycle. We are, we are God's people. Catholicism is what Judaism looks like if you believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah. You can deal with that as long as you want to, but ultimately God's presence on earth has to be in a group of people. After Jesus Christ and the preservation of the sacraments, the institution of the sacraments, that is the Catholic Church. There is still a very clear definitive statement that says there is no salvation outside the church. That's not my statement. I didn't make that up. It's in the doctrine. It's in the dogma. It's what the church has always said. How do we deal with it? We can't now say, oh, well, there is another way. Or we can't say, as one prelate said in a public forum, well, Jesus is the preferred method to salvation. That is against our faith. It's against the integrity of the faith. This is what Pope Leo was talking about in mod as modernism. This is what Archbishop Fulton Sheen was talking about. This is what the prophets have always talked uh, about, all of them, everywhere, always, have always talked about this. How about now, relativism, Kyle? What's relativism? Let's talk, let's talk about relativism. Relativism is the idea that what is true for you may not be true for me. That's it, succinctly said, that there is no absolute truth. Well, this argument implodes very simply with an application of logic, because if there's no absolute truth, then how do you know that's absolute truth? <laughs> okay. So it, it simply doesn't stand a simple test of logic. If a sixth grader can dismantle the argument, I'm not a smart man. I'm raised a herder. I'm raised a cowboy, but I can tell you clean from unclean. I can tell you why your herd is open to predators. I can tell you why the demon is preying on your parish and why it's preying on your church and why it's preying on your ministry because I've watched the patterns of predation. And when you say that relativism is there is no absolute truth, you are flinging open the door to the diabolical because now you are the judge. You are the pope. You are all of these things. You, you decide. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is... There is absolute truth. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, came, died for our sins. These are the absolute truth of the gospel. Take everything back to the passion, and if it doesn't conform to the passion, then it's not true. For instance, are we supposed to suffer? Yes, it's consistent with the passion. He came to show us the way to do that. Or does healing mean the cessation of any temporal discomfort. No, healing means reconciliation with God the Father through whatever's happening to us. Words out of the Mass. You use the faith and you use the doctrine and dogma, you use the gospel to conform your will to God the Father's will. Ultimately, this is the antidote for relativism. This is the antidote for the idea that there is no truth. This is the antidote for gender ideology, for homosexuality, for every deviancy in right order. It is a return to order through the practice 
of Jesus Christ. It is the idea that we have to take everything he said, everything, the totality of the man, to conform our life and our, and our will to God's. If Jesus said in, Ma- in the Gospel of Matthew, I come with a sword not to unite but to divide, to set father against son, mother against daughter, then we have to take that in the same amount as we take, I came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. You can't have one without another. Relativism picks and chooses. We have to take the totality of Christ and who he was. When he says, not an iota of the law falls away. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Listen to the language. I can't pick and choose. I can't say, well, it's okay for me to contracept um, because that's uh, it's okay for me because my family situation is different. I can't say it's okay for me to do this thing or do that thing or not do this thing or not do that thing. I can take this element of the faith or not take this element of the faith because it's all relative. That's relativism, and it is rife, and it is most it is most found when moral theology is departed. And I'll give you a classic example. A classic example is. When we say things like, well, the only way I could get my kids to read was uh, to give them Harry Potter and now they're reading. Moral, the moral theology and moral understanding would say very clearly, better they die illiterate than to take in that trash, to take in that anti-Catholic um, trash. Why is it anti-Catholic? Why is it trash? It, it fails to pass the test of, of Catholic literature, which is, it's not consistent with our faith. Very clear, moral theology prior to 1960, any of those manuals told you very clearly, we were not to take in the unclean in any form for any reason. If it didn't comport with doctrine and morals, then it was a problem. The other one is that the ends justifies the means. This boy resorts to dark arts to impose his will, his sense of justice, um, often violently. And then because he brings about what he considers to be a good, then it is somehow okay. Better your child die illiterate than to be affected by this. The long-term effect of this, and this is how the demon is present to institutions, is we now have priests, we now have bishops, we have thousands and thousands of CCD directors, DREs, other people in positions of formation who themselves were formed by Harry Potter, who their sense of of injustice, their sense of uh, rebellion, their sense of superiority, their sense of imposition of their own idea of justice was nourished by these books, by these series, and by other, it's not the sole source, but by modern television, by modern movies, by these things. When this happens, then the roles of fatherhood, motherhood, and right authority are militated against. And oftentimes these people are relegated to a life of rage and anger because of this overdeveloped sense of injustice. They find themselves being eaten alive by the desire for can't, for vengeance, for um, the, to re- return what they think is right order to the world. These are the long-term effects of, of relativism and modernism. Relativism is particularly dangerous and we see it in universities. We see it in universities, and I will. Uh, no one is spared in this. All of us are responsible. 
But the education orders, particularly the Society of Jesus, this falls squarely on them because in a generation, they have taught our children how to despise their faith, how to despise their fathers, how to entertain um, thoughts of deviancy, how everything is relative. Gentlemen, I place this firmly at your feet. It's going to be really, really hard for a Catholic father to send his son to one of your institutions that promotes homosexuality, disorder, and a disrespect for his very own father. If I'm writing a tuition check to your institution, I do not expect you to set about directly turning my son against me. And the laity is, quite frankly, very aware of this. And this is why things are falling off. This is why enrollment is falling off, seminary enrollment, discernment for priesthood. What is increasing? The traditional orders, the orders who are promoting the faith and right practice of the faith. So we're seeing this purification in the church. We're seeing this purification. Continue to pray for it. Join us, join everyone, even if you disagree with me, please. And if you disagree with what I'm saying and the idea and the understanding that there's a large number of the laity who are right here, they're right where we are. If you believe that the church needs to be purified from and of us, then please pray so. But let's pray for purification and let our Lord and our lady sort it out. Let them purify the church. Let them be about it. But what they need is our prayers, our desire for true purification and willingness to yield to right order, willingness to yield to the authority of God the Father flowing through the right constructs of ecclesia, through lay faithful, through all of our offices, through all of our vocations. Fathers, bishops, cardinals, holy father, I cannot have more respect for your office. I cannot have more respect for the delineation of God the Father's will coming straight through you, your office, to me. That's the purpose for this day of reparation is because there are foreign influences, unclean influences, impediments to grace, which are disrupting the flow of grace to me and to my children. The spiritual nourishment that we, the laity, we, the sheep, are desiring. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. That's all we're asking is to be fed, to be fed right order, right doctrine, right principles that bring us everlasting life, not temporal comfort. We're willing to go through this with you. We're willing to go through this for you. I cannot respect you enough. Please respect us. Please respect the vocations of marriage. Please respect the vocations of religious orders. Please respect those of us who are engaged in vocation, who are giving our lives back to God through the church, through the sacraments. We're trying our best to live it. And we're asking for you to join us. We're asking you to help us. We're asking you to shepherd us. We're asking you to feed us. That's about the reparation for today. St. Nicholas, pray for us. Kyle, I want to ask you about a situation that was passed to us this week. I guess there was a case where Ilhan Omar was speaking in the Catholic Church, and, and she was reading the Koran in the Catholic Church. Do you have any comments on that? I do. It's so 
Uh, Every time I hear a name from the AMBO during a homily, during anything, if I hear a name that is secular, that is not Catholic, it pangs me because it's inconsistent. We have so many lives of the saints. We have so many issues of heroic virtue that very simply, these unclean elements, especially that of a diabolical, quote, religion, and I did say exactly what you heard me say, very simply to quote the psalm, and it's in this article from the exorcists that are asking for the reparation, the gods of the Gentiles are demons. When you say in the modern idea that the God of the Muslims, the God of Islam is the God of, of, uh, of Catholics, it's an incorrect statement. Our God is a triune God. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And any religion, cult, or group that denies the divinity of Jesus Christ is not analogous to our faith. Very, very Simply, But we're told we all worship the same God, Kyle. Do we? We do not. Ours is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in divinity, equal. This, read the Athanasian Creed very, very simply. It is the definitive Trinitarian doctrine of our church and still applicable. We can't modernize and say, that in this sense, we should include this very, very simply. To reach out to other religions prior to 1960, ecumenism or ecumenicism, however you want to pronounce that, was very simply, it was motivated by conversion. It was motivated out of charity and the understanding that I can't leave this soul in a state of not hearing the full gospel, of not hearing are being open to the opportunity to conversion. That was that was what that any interreligious dialogue was based upon conversion. After 1960, it took a different site. It was coexistence. It was the idea that we could all agree to disagree. We cannot. It's the most uncharitable thing that a Catholic can do is to allow a Muslim to persist in his error, to allow someone to persist in his error that denies Jesus Christ. And why is it uncharitable, Kyle? Go back, go further. Why is it uncharitable when we meet someone that's in a different religion for us not to let them know about the Catholic faith and the sacraments? It is uncharitable because it it is the only path to eternal salvation. There is no salvation outside the church. It is the only path. It's not the preferred path. But there is an absolute need to believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to start taking out elements of the gospel. You're going to taking out. You're going to start taking out what he said. Large chunks of the Gospel of John now become uh, somehow figurative. They become symbolic. We eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is the basis and should be the basis of all apologetics. Is and the idea that you have to meet them where they are. You may meet them where they are, but you can't let them stay there, nor can you join them. This is a diminution of our faith. It's a watering down. It is, it is a, the reason it's uncharitable is because it leaves this soul in apostasy. It leaves this soul in error. It leaves this soul 
devoid of the hope of everlasting life. And so it leaves this soul in an unperfected faith. And it is a true crime against charity. Charity being the desire to spread the gospel and the desire for salvation for all living creatures. This salvation being unification with God, the necessity of belief in Jesus Christ being something that is is requisite. It, it, it can't be gotten around. We have leaders of the ecumenical or ecumenical communities, Catholic leaders who spend years and years in community with these people converting no one. Well, they can't get to the, you know, John Bosco talked about the two pillars of the faith, the Blessed Mother and the Eucharist. And so if you never get around to talking about that, if you're just there so that I like you and you like me, but at what point are we going to pull them up? Now, I know that the sacraments are the way that God the Father gave us. He knows we're going to fall. And the way, in my simplistic way, the way he picks us up is through the sacraments. If we never give them the sacraments, how are they ever going to get up? So there's some disconnect here. Again, again, Angela, I will point out that the modernist and relativist will tell you that you have an oversimplified theology. I do. But you're, but you're exactly right. This is the faith of the child. Father said this. Jesus said this. If we do something else, we will not be satisfying those requirements. We will not be fulfilling what he told us to do. Very, very simply. This is the faith of a child who knows that he is either obedient or disobedient to what his father says. Now, with regard to obedience and disobedience, in disobedience, we are told that we must not transgress morals or doctrine, and we can't be led into that era. era. Well, pun intended, era or error. <laughs> you sound like um, you're from Boston, era or error. I think that either way, we can't be led there. Yeah. Um, but the child, Jesus, in his discuss, discussion on this is very, very clear, very clear, extremely clear. If he's referring to a child of less than the age of reason or someone of a spiritual simplicity, what he's saying then very clearly is, if you lead one of these little ones astray, better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you flung into the sea. I'm going to tell you, fathers, bishops, cardinals, holy father, me as a patriarch, as a father, as a grandfather, these are millstone moments for us. These are millstone moments. Are we leading those souls in our care into moral or theological error? Are we leading them there? Are we leading the Angelas and the others with the simplistic faith of a child who understands right from wrong? Are we leading them someplace based upon an imposition of obedience that is disordered? Because if our will is not consistent with God's will, then we are in danger. These are the millstone moments, the authority that we have, and I'm speaking to you as men, I'm speaking to you as fathers, as shepherds. You have authority. I have authority. And authority flows from God. It's not by merit. God chose. God chose. We're in these positions because the Holy Spirit, God moves. It's not by merit. 
that we are in these positions. But we are going to be very, very responsible for conforming our will to God's will so that grace may flow through the office that we occupy, whatever that office may be, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, priest, bishop, cardinal, holy father. And if we do things that impede the flow of grace through our office, we will answer for them. If we lead souls astray, these are the millstone moments. You know, Kyle, I, I think they've lost their faith. I think it's a loss of faith. They have a cure for spiritual cancer, but they, I don't know if they don't believe that they really have it or if they think that if they bring it up, it's like when I worked in sales and I befriended everybody, but I never wanted to ask for the sale because <laughs> I didn't like that awful place of asking someone for money. I just wanted to get along with them. And sooner or later, my boss said, you know, Angela, when are you gonna ask for the sale? You didn't want to put yourself in that uncomfortable position. And I think that's what's going on with converting people to the Catholic faith and telling them what we really have to offer for them, that it's for their own benefit and how much it can really help them. It's a I lack of that, faith. I think it's it, it's probably an accurate observation for many. I, I think it is. I, I, I meet so many and work with so many priests who are so well-intentioned who have such a love for humanity and the souls in their care. But the lack of formation, the lack of understanding of how to, to be a father. Being a father requires discipline. It, it requires shaping. It requires formation. And being father and being friend are two very, very different things. Mm -hmm. Very different things. Some of the hardest things I've ever had to do was disciplined my children. Some of the, it was very, very hard, but I knew that I would answer for it, either the doing of it or the not doing of it. It's the thirst for souls, which has to be the overarching concern. It has to be the thirst for souls, not the temporal comfort, not the satisfaction, but sanctification. Our Lord over and over and over again, put this forward, God the Father, it's love for God the Father. That's, I think that's ultimately at the basis, is to be, is to understand it to be a son. Love of the Father has to eclipse everything else in order to be a son. Jesus shows us that. Over and over we are shown that. St. Joseph shows us that. St. Nicholas shows us that. All of the saints ultimately find an perfected love for God the Father. And out of that perfected love comes the, the strength, the courage, comes the actual grace to do those things which are hard, to do those things which are difficult, to do those things which are arduous. Fortitude is the willingness to engage the arduous. Fortitude is courage stretched out. Fortitude is one of the attributes that is absolutely necessary for the, the pilgrim church as, the, as a whole, as a church, and as us individually. So as we bring this to a close, today's program, and, and I want to give Angela an opportunity to make some comments, but I want to stress something very, very clearly. I am not anti-Pope. 
I am not saying that this particular pope is the Antichrist. I am not saying, do not put words in my mouth. I am not spewing something. I am not militating against the church. I'm not militating for uh, schism. I am not militating for separation. I'm not militating for that at all. What I'm militating for is a return to the unity that Christ desired for let's lay all the temporal concerns aside and march triumphantly as the church militant toward eternal life together. And our weapons are right order, right doctrine, and the moral understanding that what we are doing and what we have been doing for the last 50 years has led us very, very far astray. Let's return to the straight and narrow path that leads souls to heaven. That's what I'm asking for. I'm asking for a simplified theology. I'm asking for taking things and laying them to the side and saying very simply, this is an exodus. We must leave this Egypt that we find our place of temporal comfort of the church modern. We must leave this place and go back into the desert with God the Father and do those things which made us healthy, which made us vibrant, which nourished and fed the sheep back to the known range of right order, right doctrine. And to, through this day of reparation, is to address the diabolical influences, the, the toehold, the hoofhold, if you will, that the diabolical has gotten in our church by affecting and bringing these practices in. I'm asking us to clean house. I'm asking us to clean house of the practices and the elements that are not consistent with our faith. I'm not saying get rid of people. I am not saying get rid of individuals. That's not what I'm saying by clean house. It's the practices. It's time for repentance and metanoia, for the faith to come back. And I am no, I am no voice of prophecy. I am no voice at all. I'm simply a cowboy who is telling you that if we don't return to the known range, we're eating plants that are not good for us. We're, 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 there's no spiritual nourishment here. We're in a howling wasteland devoid of the landmarks of right order, of morals, of doctrine. We're, we're in a place that is not good for us. And when we are here, and when we are here without a shepherd, the wolves will have us. The wolves will have us. That's what I'm telling you. And Kyle, there's so much joy in the Catholic Church. It's It's... The joy and the peace, it's when I look out at what's going on in the world, I get crazy, but the peace and the joy and the love that the Catholic Church offers through the sacraments and the, uh, the Blessed Mother, I, I can't imagine my life anymore without that, and I, I want everyone to have that. I want everybody to have that, and I know you do too. Absolutely, Angela, and so well said, so well said. I want peaceful hearth. I want families that pray together. Today, ask your family to pray the rosary for this purpose, for the purpose of restoration, for the purpose of reparation, and for the purpose of reconciliation. God bless you, Kyle. That's all the time we have. And I want to thank you. I know what your schedule's like, so thank you so much for uh, spending this past hour with us. You're listening to Kyle Clement and Reclamation Theology on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio.
You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.